0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 214 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Mom Panor, an interview with Masha Goins. My name is Richard Johannesson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Matt, this is a really cool woman with a really cool background. Uh, She's Oxford educated and began her career in the not-for-profit sector, conflict resolution in war-torn countries. She then went to work for Amazon, specifically Audible, working in big business. And then she actually turned her talents after dealing with years of Lyme disease and becoming a mom to become a, an Instagram coach in the entrepreneurial sector.
1: Rich, Masha was sick for so long. She had to find ways to number symptoms. And she told us when she finally stopped doing that and became healthy, she realized how sick she really was. She had to become her own detective for Lyme disease. And once she was diagnosed, she had to learn to get what you could out of one doctor, and then move on either through research or another doctor to get what she needed next. Today, is feeling much better and is raising a healthy family and is living a happy life. So Matt, this
0: is a woman who grew up in the lime Belt. She was bitten by ticks many, many times, and she had a health journey, which was sort of up and down based on how stressful her life was. And thankfully, she's been able to bring her life to a place where she can have some peace. She can live a less stressful life. She can be a good mom and she can also be a mompreneur. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce the Tick Boot Camp community, Mompreneur with Masha Goins. Hey Masha, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Uh, We're really excited to have you too. So Masha, talk to us a little bit about your life. I understand your, um, living with your family in the birthplace or the state birthplace of Lyme disease.
2: That's right. Um, we live in a tree house in the, pretty much in the forest um, in tick central um, Connecticut. And we moved here from New York City about seven years ago. And um, before I moved here, I had spent my teen years in Westchester County, New York. So I was familiar with ticks and you know in the 90s was bitten by ticks all the time at school it was just part of where we lived nobody thought about it nobody talked about Lyme or anything like that you know you'd sit in class and find like a tick on your head you just go to the nurse she'd remove it and move along right that's that's pretty much um that but yes now we live in uh, Fairfield County Connecticut in a little town uh, surrounded by trees and um yeah and that's, and I'll tell you more about my life story in a minute, but that's. Yeah, so,
0: like. so let's, let's talk about your journey though. So where, where did your life's journey begin? I understand you're not a native of the U.S.
2: Well, that's right. I, I was born in Tokyo, Japan, um, and my dad is American and my mom is Russian. Um, so I'm a love product of the cold war. They fell in love um, during the cold war in the seventies um, and um Got together against all odds um even though you know my mom's family uh, my dad's family disinherited him for marrying a communist and you know when she came here she had no concept of you know uh western society it was just um it was crazy anyway so we um then moved to Japan because of my dad's Uh, job. And I lived in Japan and then moved to Germany and was in German school systems all my life. Um,
0: So talk to us about your educational experience first in Japan and then later in Germany. Did any of that educational experience include um, any information about ticks or tick diseases?
2: No, nothing. I mean, it was just, you know, this in the 80s and 90s, um, and I'm dating myself now, but it was just not really something you talk you know it was not known so you knew that there were ticks there were mosquitoes whatever but it wasn't something that I ever heard about um, when I was growing up Um, and when I was uh, 19 I got very ill actually and I um, was uh, I ended up I was going to go on holiday with my friends in, um, Spain. And I was determined. I got really sick, but I thought, you know, this is just, I, I just have some kind of virus. It'll get better. It got to the point where I couldn't move my neck. And, um, I, um, couldn't actually, once I got to Spain, I couldn't get out of bed. I, I could barely walk. And, uh,
0: I so Marshall, Let me let me ask you yeah. to pause there for a second, because I'm just looking for a timeline of your life. So you were born in Japan. You were your early education was in Germany. Where did you where did you complete your your middle school and high school education? Were you still in Germany? Did you come to the US? When when were you when were you? Um, I guess, when did you immigrate to the US or come to the US?
2: Yeah, so that's the U.S. is where when it all went pear-shaped. Um, so I was in the U.S. Um, when I, I got to the U.S. when I was 10 um, and um, lived in Westchester from oh. 10 until, you know, 18, um, 19.
0: Okay, pause there for a second because I want <laughs> to talk to you about your life between the ages of 10 and 18 or 19 where you first started to get sick. So you're now going to school in Westchester and you shared with us a little bit earlier that you recall having been bitten by ticks and going to the nurse and having the nurse remove ticks. So talk about how many times that happened between the ages of 10 and 18, not just going to the nurse, but how many times you remember being bitten by ticks?
2: Yeah, I mean, multiple times, it was just a regular occurrence. I remember, you know, sitting in class and feeling like, you know, a disgustingly engorged tick on the on my scalp and then being like, oh, I have to go to the nurse and then the nurse would remove it. And okay, you now you can come back to class. And nobody thought anything. There wasn't any like, okay, we have to get the tick tested or um, maybe you need to go on some antibiotics or anything like that, right? There was, I, I never had a bullseye or anything. Um, so there was no sort of monitoring or, or connection between getting bitten by ticks and um, the health issues that I was started to experience once once I was a teen.
0: Okay, so let, let's again, now talk about your educational experience here in the US between 10 and 18. Was there any education given to you, either in school or in a social setting about checking for ticks and removing ticks and any diseases you could get from tick uh, from tick bites?
2: I mean, you know, Possibly the nurse talked about it, um, but it went in one ear and out the other. It was not something that was at the forefront of my mind at all. And you just knew that if you found a tick, it had to be removed. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, the raccoons have rabies and you can't get bitten by a raccoon. It was, you know, there was this whole rabies scare in the 90s. There was really it just didn't seem like a threat the whole ticks in general. And we lived in the suburbs in White Plains, New York. um, And, you know, it was just um, tick central,
0: pretty much. So um, now, was there any information about people getting ill from tick bites available to you in that window of time in the 90s between when you arrived to the US when you were 10 and before you had gotten sick when you were 19 or 18?
2: No. No, I didn't hear about Lyme disease. I didn't become aware of Lyme disease um, until I was in my 30s and um, started hearing about it from some, you know, holistic health practitioners. Um, So I was just not even, it wasn't even something that was at the forefront of my mind at all.
0: Now, do you recall suffering from any illnesses before you had this sort of threshold uh, or notable illness when you were 18 or 19? Before that, do you recall receiving any, you know, any um, any illnesses, or do you feel sick between the ages of ten and eighteen?
2: Yeah, I got mono uh, mononucleosis when I was uh, sixteen, so that was like my first um, the first time that I was really ill, and I remember, you know, just. Kind of being in bed for a long time and not being able to function properly and missing out on school, which of course I thought was fabulous at the time. I just stay in bed and read books. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, the, and then the interesting thing is that the Epstein, uh, you know, bar virus, um, th- that's something that I also, you know, it stays in your system um, and just lays dormant, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I had mono and then um, once you have it, it never goes away. And apparently um, I think 95% of the population um, are infected with it, so.
0: Now looking back at that experience with mono, do you believe that it was a tick disease that reduced your immune system and caused the, the um, mono, Challenge that you had faced and caused you to spend a lot of time out of school? Or do you believe that perhaps mono is what caused you to have an immune disruption, which ultimately caused you to get sicker when you had your crash when you were 18 or 19?
2: Yeah, I think the mono probably came first. I mean, I had really classic mono symptoms. Um, and then um, it's only recently in this last year that I have realized that what happened to me when I was you know, 19, I guess I was 19, um, must have been tick related. And because it was a big mystery, you know, I was, uh, my mom, I, I ended up in a wheelchair in Spain, my mom had to come and get me um, and get me on a plane in a wheelchair and take me to the hospital in New York. Um, because And they had no idea what was going on. And of course, um, you know, it ended up, they ended up saying that it might have been viral meningitis, um, but there was no diagn- diagnosis that was actually, um, you know, created. So they they it was a big question mark.
0: Okay, so let's pause there for a second. I want to talk to you a little bit more about your childhood and what your goals and dreams were during your childhood. So you you spent about ten years uh, in. Uh, of your life in Europe. You then came to the U.S. What kinds of things were you dreaming about and what kinds of things were you working towards uh, all the way up to going to college?
2: Um, Well, my goal was to go um, to college as far away from home as possible. That was my big goal. And I did really well in school. I was um, always a really good student and was lucky that I didn't have to study very hard Um, to make good grades and so I um, applied um, to the University of Oxford because um, I I had, in addition to the US high school diploma, we have the German school system had like an extra year of schooling, which just sounds like torture, like a 13th year of high school. Um, And so I was able to apply directly as an undergraduate to the UK, which most US students are not able to do. Um, So that was my goal was to go to the UK, um, have a lot of fun, and um, just experience uh, freedom and college life that was um, and that's what happened and I you know managed to do it with myself without any tutors or I don't know anyone paying to write my college essay or whatever they do nowadays (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) they did not have any fiber back then to find people to buy your essays
2: yeah it was like you know I didn't even have a college counselor and I refused. My dad went to Harvard, so I, I was trying to rebel and I refused to take my SATs so that I couldn't even study at an, a U.S. university. So that was my big like um, acting out as a teenager.
0: So what was your major when you went to Oxford?
2: Um, so I studied modern languages um, and focused on Russian and German literature.
0: And then after you graduated from Oxford, what did you do?
2: Uh, after I graduated from Oxford, I, um, uh, you know, I became very political during the, the, the Balkan wars were happening at the time. And I you know, started becoming more political about what was happening and interested in you know, the whole concept of conflict and conflict resolution. So then I wanted to do a master's at the London School of Economics, um, focused on international relations, uh, which is what I did. Um, And I started working uh, in London at a nonprofit um, on uh, conflict resolution and um, peace building issues.
0: So talk to us us about where that took you. What kind of work did you do? Were you in the for-profit or not-for-profit community? And what kind of work were you doing after you graduated from the London School?
2: Yeah, so it it it's I was working for a nonprofit and I um I remember actually the it was my first paid job that I got and there was no job opening or anything. I basically um was determined to work for a specific person who was doing really interesting work on gender and conflict and gender and security issues and so I just um you know basically uh <laughs> offered myself as a free volunteer, as an intern and um, pestered her until she, you know, agreed to let me work for free for over six months, which again, now I think interns are all paid, et cetera. You know, like, so I worked for free for a long time. And then finally they offered me a job and that's when I started um, working. And what I did was i put together um, teams and missions to go to conflict uh, and post-conflict areas around the world. And I worked with policymakers um, at member state government level and UN, and the UN Security Council to basically bridge the divide between the reality of, you know, what was happening, say, in Liberia and what the UN was doing about it, you know, how they were helping. Um, so that was really um, interesting work and I was very passionate about it.
0: Let's let's round, round out this portion of our conversation about your career. So where did you go after you finished doing the not-for-profit work in conflict resolution?
2: Okay, so then I got typhoid um, when I was in West Africa. And um, that was, uh, you know, one of those moments where I'm like, you know what, this is, uh, I think I, I need a career change here. It was just, um, I think I I was hallucinating at one point, and I was I called my dad, and he said, "You know, what are you doing in that hellhole? And you need to get out of here and come back to New York and get a real job." Um, And I, you know, it it really—I mean, I'm lucky that I got antibiotics because it was—I got really sick, and um, it was not, you know, it was not a—it was not a good, good experience. It was not a good experience. But yeah, antibiotics saved my life for sure. And I was yellow for about two months, like literally my skin turned yellow. Um, and yeah, then I decided, you know what, I'm going to make a career change. I'm going back to New York and I'm going to see about working in media. And that's how I ended up working um, for Amazon and Audible and specifically.
0: So what do you do at Audible?
2: I worked in business development and content acquisition. So I negotiated the deals with um, agents and publishers and authors, and it was quite fun and completely the other end of the spectrum. It was like a parallel universe to the work that I had done previously, Um, you know, like working with child combatants versus um, negotiating deals. It was just like different portals in the same universe.
0: Well, but was there a thread, at least from a skill set standpoint, meaning were you using negotiating skills in both arenas?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think my diplomacy skills, my negotiating skills, and my project management skills were transferable. Um, So, and I was eager enough at the time that I was happy to learn, you know, whatever, whatever I needed to learn, Um, but it was a huge change.
0: So I understand that you pivoted away from working for Audible and now you're uh, you started your own business. So talk to us about that.
2: Yes. So now I have my own business. Um, I you know between Amazon um, and where I am now, I worked in marketing um, for uh, nonprofits and different companies. Um, but I decided to start my own business, and that's where my heart has always been to be an entrepreneur, and it's been actually the pandemic really accelerated that process for me, um, because I focus on Instagram business coaching. So I support primarily female entrepreneurs and business owners in growing their back brands on social media and Instagram. And I've been able to replace my six figure, um, job day job with that. So, um, that's been amazing.
0: So talk to us about why the gal who was, uh, inspired to work at a not-for-profit has always had an entrepreneurial heart. And where are the parallels between someone with an entrepreneurial spirit and someone looking to save the world through the not-for-profit community?
2: Yeah, (laughs) it's such a good question, but I feel like, you know, my heart has always been in serving others and motivating and supporting and helping others. And now that's really channeled and focused on, um, specifically helping mothers since I became a mother seven years ago. So a lot of the clients and students that I have are um, moms in business and face a particularly challenging set of obstacles to to launching their own businesses and to growing their businesses. Um, So that's where my heart is at. And it's really inspiring for me to see, um, you know, people um, just become, you know, being able to have that balance of spending time with a family and um, creating a livelihood as well online.
0: So now let's walk back to this experience that you had when you were 19. Uh, Were you in college at the time or were you still in high school when you were taking this holiday to Spain that resulted in you having a health crash?
2: Yeah, so I was in college and um, I was dating a British guy um, at the time. And uh, so we, you know, it was his annual pilgrimage to Mallorca. So it was me and two British guys um, who were, you know, hundred percent potheads. Um, And I, you know, I, I arrived in Mallorca at the airport with a neck brace (laughs) because I was so determined to go on holiday, but I couldn't move my neck. Um, And um, I just thought, you know, whatever, it's going to get better. I'm just going to keep popping the Advil and, you know, obviously marijuana is going to help. Right. So, um, but of course it didn't actually help. And I got, it got to the point where I started developing severe headaches, um, and, um, you know, meningitis, like symptoms where I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't eat anymore. I couldn't, I could barely speak. And, um, I, I didn't know what was going on. Right. And my mom, I spoke to my mom and she uh, said that blood tests came back, that I had elevated white blood cell counts, but they didn't know what was going on. Da, 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 da. It wasn't a flu. I had had a flu like a month before that happened. Um, and so it got to the point where my mom realized that I couldn't get back on my own. And so she had to fly over to Spain and um, get me and basically put me in a wheelchair and um, and get me on a plane, um, and I just remember, um, you know, her getting me and putting me into this air-conditioned room, because, of course, the place I was staying in had, like, no air-conditioning, <laughs> you know, it was just, like, I, I don't know what I was, it was, it was, a, uh, yeah, it was awful, um, but I remember being in a room with air-conditioning and thinking, like, this is amazing, air-conditioning is amazing, like, my head, I couldn't even talk, because my head was in so much pain, um, but I finally, arrived in um, New York City and went straight in the wheelchair to Mount Sinai Hospital. And they ran all sorts of tests on me. I mean, I remember like they had to give me like four volumes to put me in the MRI because I have claustrophobia. So that was, that was fun. And um, they ran all different diagnostic tests trying to figure out what it was and they couldn't get infectious disease specialists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and nobody could figure out what it was. And so they, their final diagnosis was like, you know, possible viral meningitis
0: question mark. So Masha, what, what I'm a little confused about is how these symptoms developed to the point where you finally had that crash and you were wheelchair bound and you had to be picked up by your mom. Were, was it a short window of time between when you first had these sort of neck pains and then you crashed or were your symptoms developing over time and then you finally had this, this crash in part as a result of having this immune disrupting activity where you're living in this, you know, this hell hole, you know, during your holiday and smoking too much pot and doing whatever else you guys are doing. You know, I, I, I want to get a handle on how that developed.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was already, I had had the flu when I was in New York before I went on holiday and I thought I had recovered from it. Um, and then, you know, this neck pain started. So it was like a new type of symptom, but I completely ignored it and I was young and healthy or thought I was healthy um, and just determined to not let that stop me from having a nice holiday in the summertime. Um, so it just went downhill from there really. And okay, so let's
0: pause there. Yeah. So you, you have a summer flu. Mm-hmm. When you had the summer flu, did you go to see any doctors to be treated for your summer flu when you were in New York?
2: Yes, I did see a doctor and you know they just said to get some rest and drink lots of fluids and you know, take some Advil if you need need it.
0: So did the, the New York-based doctor that you were treating with at that time think that, hey, it's summertime. And you have a flu and perhaps this is not the flu, but it could be something else like Lyme disease.
2: Never, it never even came up. I mean, literally I'm 42 now and it, it's just in the last year that I realized that that's, that must be what, ha- what happened because it, it, until now, you know, it never even was a possibility. It was just a big, oh, I had meningitis.
0: Now, when was the last time prior to your summer flu that you recall having been bitten by a tick?
2: i don't i don't recall i don't recall but the thing is that i spent in the summertime i spent all my time outside and i used to climb trees there was a tree where i could see the i could see long island from the top of the tree so i'd spend hours in that tree like climbing the tree bringing magazines up there reading books in the tree you know so that was um and you know it just i was bitten all the time and You know, when I've been been bitten since I've been here in Connecticut, I often don't even, I've never, don't find the ticks. I don't even see the bites, you know?
0: Okay. So you're, you're living in the line belt. You're getting bitten by ticks. You have a summer flu. You see a doctor. The doctor tells you to just get some rest. You now go on your holiday in Spain with, um, with the party boys, your neck is bothering you at that time. You, you now crash, you come back to New York, you go to Mount Sinai, right? Whole battery of tests are done on you. Did you describe the summer flu to the folks at Mount Sinai? And did you talk to them about how all of your, all of your symptoms had developed while they were trying to find a diagnosis?
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, no, we went through everything and my mom was there and, uh, you know, they just um, Lyme disease never even came up. I mean, I remember talking to an infectious disease specialist and he was asking me all these questions about, you know, did I travel to anywhere in Africa? You know, could it be parasites? I don't know, whatever. But it was never, you know, the most obvious thing was never, you know, maybe it was discussed amongst the doctors and nurses, but I didn't have that conversation with them.
0: Just ironically, next week there's going to be a a conference held at Mount Sinai on Lyme disease. So I think it's interesting that we have these sort of parallel conversations where, um, you know, you clearly had Lyme disease and you had classic symptoms that could have been identified by doctors in New York and could have been identified by doctors in Spain and ultimately could have been identified by doctors at the very hospital that's holding this conference next week. So just ironically, um, I want to point out to our listeners that um, that you arrived at a place which is now, is now developing many of the creative tools that are being used to treat people with Lyme disease. So, Um, talk to us about how things developed after you left Mount Sinai without a diagnosis.
2: Yeah, it took, uh, it took me several months to just, you know, I'd lost a lot of weight from not eating for, um, a few weeks. Um, and I was pretty, uh, slender to begin with. So it took me a few months to kind of regain my strength and just get back to normal, um, which I did, you know, um, and, you know, I remember just hiking, I mean, like, we used to go hiking all the time as a family and walk in parks. And, you know, it's the New York area has so many beautiful, um, spots. So who knows? I was probably bitten by ticks out right afterwards as well. It's just, I'm like a tick magnet. Um, so yeah, so then everything seemed to get better Then you know, I was in college the first year of college. So a lot of my college time, um, got, was a little hazy. Um, but I did my college post uh, post post-grad and then started working in the UK. And um, it wasn't until I came back to New York in 2005, no, 2006. Yeah. I came back to New York in 2006 and I, you know, Realized that I had, you know, to get fit. You know, I wasn't exercising during this entire time. Um, so I got fit. I actually met my current husband, who's a uh, former triathlo- triathlete and Ironman, um, and he got me to start working out every day and get really healthy, etc. So he was a huge part in my um, in my health journey.
1: So do you think, Masha, that you were you were fighting off Lyme all this time because? you were eating right, you were exercising, and you had a strong immune system. So it was just a balance of Lyme in your immune system. You feel bad, but then you feel better. You think that was going on for many years before it finally caught up to you?
2: Yeah, I basically, I think that I had issues the whole time, but I was self-medicating. And what happened was that, you know, during college and afterwards, I was... um, uh, you know, I was drinking, mouth smoking pot, I was self-medicating in those ways. Um, and I, uh, I got sober actually in 2006. And it wasn't until after I got sober and clean and um, really started prioritizing my health. And, um, you know, my husband uh, was a huge part of that, um, helping me uh, really just you know, understand what was going on and that I felt what I had to feel. I was just mad, I couldn't, I didn't feel because I was never um, completely uh, free of, and I was always under the influence of some kind.
1: So, so you were essentially, fierce. you were essentially numbing what was going on because you yeah. weren't feeling well, you were just sort of subconsciously numbing that to get through life.
2: Exactly, I I had no energy. I remember in college trying to go for a run, And, you know, go for a jog. And I was just like, uh, I was like dying, you know, and I just I couldn't. But then, you know, when you're under the influence, then you get energy, you feel better. And so it was like, um, as soon as and, and the UK has a huge drinking culture, right? Our college at Oxford, every college has their own bar, right? You drink with your tutors, your professors, right? You ha- you drink during the day. It's it's a it's it's hard to describe in the US. It would be so inappropriate here, um, but um, and also the work culture there. Y- you finish work and you go to the pub with your boss, right? That's part of your job. You have to go to the pub with all your colleagues and you you're drinking, you know? And, um, so it was a very unhealthy kind of culture. I'm glad I'm back in the U S. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a big part of it where I, you know, probably had all of these Lyme symptoms that I was just masking.
1: So now when you, when you meet your husband and you stop drinking and you start to exercise, you said that a lot of these symptoms started to pop up because now you're, You're not masking it. You're not having anything to cover up the symptoms. So what symptoms started to pop back up at this, at this time?
2: Yeah. So fatigue uh, was a big part, you know, just feeling, uh, you know, exhausted even when, you know, I'd have a full night's sleep and just um, just being exhausted all the time and feeling um, run down and um, getting joint pain as well. So um, it was something that because he got me on this exercise regimen, it really helped me a lot. Then when I started having, um, when I got pregnant and I had two kids um, pretty quickly, one after the other, um, that took a lot out of me. And it wasn't until I, I crashed until I stopped breastfeeding my babies. That's when everything kind of, I realized, whoa, something is wrong, really wrong. Like I shouldn't be feeling this way um, when I'm only 40 and I am um, getting a full night's sleep. Why do I feel like I'm hundred years old and I can barely stand up in the morning? Um, so that's, so I didn't really no- notice how I felt until I stopped breastfeeding basically, because you have these hormones that support you during that time. And they are these, you know, the guys never get them. Like my husband didn't get the hormones, but the breastfeeding hormones really, um, they help you deal with not sleeping. They help you continue to want to take care of that baby through like the challenging early times.
1: So Marshall, let's talk about because he was your boyfriend then husband, and then you had children, right? And when he was still your boyfriend is when you were, when you were starting to exercise and stop drinking. So walk us through your symptom development from the time you were dating up until the time you got married and how that impacted your life before your children.
2: Yeah. So that was, you know, uh, during that time we were living in New York city and we were super active. He doesn't drink at all. He is, um, a tr- you know, triathlete is super healthy. And so I got into a really healthy lifestyle with him, which was amazing. And I didn't feel, um, you know, I went, I, I went to see one naturopath who, you know, convinced me that I had, you know, reactivated Epstein-Barr or whatever. And that's, that. why, that's why I was feeling tired and I had brain fog, right? Now I'm, I've always been really high functioning. So my brain fog doesn't necessarily seem like brain fog to some other people, but I can tell when it's brain fog, if I'm trying to recall something or think of a name or you know think of a word or something like that that's brain fog right for me and that's something so fatigue and brain fog are probably the two main symptoms I had during that time but exercise um, and eating well definitely helped
1: so when you went to the naturopath did and she told you that you had reactivated bar virus did you believe her
2: um, I mean, you know, it was sounded reasonable, you know, he, all the symptoms are like, you know, fatigue, brain fog, 5000 other symptoms, right, that sound like Lyme as well, but Lyme never came up, right. So he and and he um, prescribed, you know, a million supplements, etc. He also said, yeah, and you're mildly allergic to you know, I don't know what it was like almonds and wheat. Right. And like all I was eating, you know, my favorite thing to eat was like an almond croissant. So I was like, that's really like, I don't like that diagnosis at all. Like I can't, I'm mildly allergic. What does that mean? If I'm eating an almond croissant, I'm not getting a reaction. Why do I have to stop doing that? So anyway, I try, I definitely started eating healthier. I became um, really health conscious in terms of how I was eating and, um, that helped a lot, but yeah, there was never any mention of Lyme that didn't even come up.
1: So there was no, no suggestion of using herbal medicine or any kind of tinctures to address your reactive Epstein bar it was just lifestyle changes and diet and sleep and things like that. It sounds like.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stress. And like stress was like the, the whole thing, but you know, stress, like as uh, my parents were divorcing for like 13 years, <laughs> so like there was, there was always a source of stress. From my family's side. And so I was like, okay, well, I can manage stress by doing exercise and sleeping well and whatever. But yeah, there was never any mention of treating Lyme.
1: So now at this point, you, th- you think it's just react- react- reactive with Epstein barr virus. You're feeling a little bit better because you're exercising, you're sleeping well, you're, you're eating well. When you when you now get when you get married to your now husband, was there any stress or symptom flare-ups then during that time of having? probably high stress and low sleep and, and planning for your wedding and, and getting married?
2: No, um, no, not really. Um, it was, uh, you know, I was in a good house um, for several years and um, I just kind of accepted that, you know, I felt tired at times when without any reason, you know, drank a lot of coffee and that it was helped. Um, Probably didn't help, but I thought it helped. Psychologically, it helped. Um, And yeah, so it wasn't really until I, after I had my kids and um, finished nursing them, that I, uh, my body, it felt like crashed, you know, like my body had done its duty and given everything to the babies. And I had like, they were both really big babies. My husband is like six, six. So Um, you know, and yeah, I just took everything out of me. And that's when I realized that's when I started crashing and all of the symptoms came up, you know?
1: So psychologically speaking, Lyme often results in people having anxiety or depression that they didn't have before. Did you ever experience any neurological symptoms or psychological symptoms as a result of Lyme disease?
2: Well, that's such an interesting question because I suffered from anxiety and depression since I was a teenager right? So, which is why I was self-medicating in high school, in college, and during my, you know, early career. And, um, but like, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, is, did I develop depression because of Lyme disease? Did I, um, or was it, you know, uh, in spite of it, or did it just happen in parallel? Um, But it was, It was definitely a factor and something that, you know, I was put on all sorts of um, medications um, at one point and that I, that I didn't need, but yeah, that's been a big factor.
1: And Masha, have you ever gone to a psychologist or a therapist or anybody? Because we've heard a lot of people tell us that surprisingly their mental health professionals are the ones who first recommend Lyme disease. Because they see it so much in in the mental health community. So is that did it, did it ever get brought up by any mental health professionals you saw?
2: That's so interesting. No, no, never. It never came up. Um, you know, I had uh, pretty dysfunctional family dynamics um, uh, in my life, so that was always like, well, obviously that's why you're depressed, you know. So there was never it was such a clear cause. Um, causal relationship. So, you know, that never even came up. And I had never even thought of that connection, to be honest, until just now.
1: So, you know, you mentioned to Rich earlier, you did a lot of, a lot of work with, with people, you know, specifically females. And now you're doing work today with females as well in the Instagram community. Do you think looking back at your history that you were, your diagnosis was delayed because you were, I guess, number one, a woman, and then number two, a mom, right. And then number three, going through some stressors in your life that everybody said, Oh, she's just got a ton of stuff going on in her life. So she's just stressed and depressed and anxious up. Oh, she's just a mom. So all those symptoms she's experiencing is because she's a mom who's not sleeping well. And of course you're going to, you're not feel well. Do you think a lot of that contributed to your, your delayed diagnosis of Lyme disease?
2: Oh, hundred percent. I mean, so what happened was, um, you know, last year, uh, in 2020 um, and the year before that, 2019 and 2020, um, my daughter is five. I stopped nursing her when she was three. And as soon as I stopped nursing her and those feel good hormones went away and I could feel my body, it was like, whoa, what's going on here? This does not feel normal, right? I went to my GP, I went to another GP, I went to a PA. And I I told them, I'm like, I'm not feeling well. Um, My babies are sleeping through the night. I have no reason not to feel like this. And they're like, well, you're, um, you're a working mom. And of course you're run down and you're fatigued and that's normal. And I had one doctor here in Lyme, Central Connecticut, one doctor who actually said, you just need to work out an hour a day, five days a week for a month, and then come back and see how you feel. And um, I just laughed at him. I just laughed because I felt so dismissed. And I, re- and I, you know, as a working mother of two little kids and I was commuting an hour each way for my job, uh, you know, I couldn't even shower every day. So the idea that like, you know, I'd have to like, of course I know exercise is good, right? That's so patronizing. Um, And I live with, you know, this super um, human athlete, (laughs) you know, like his number one solution is always exercise. Um, So, but it was such a, and I told him, I said to this doctor, I said, can you check me for Lyme? I live in the woods, like we live in a treehouse in the forest. Can you please check me for Lyme? They did the Lyme tests um, and nothing, right? They just do that screening test. I always come up negative every single. So it was just
1: time. The, just the Elisa, not the Western blot. They did, right? The screening.
2: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And um, so then I said, you know what? This this is just not right. The GPS are not getting it. I need to go to a specialist. So I was on the hunt. I was determined. I was like, this I can figure this out. I'm smart. I'm just gonna like track my symptoms and go to one specialist after another. So I said, okay, well, I've got joint pain. I'm gonna go to the rheumatologist, right? My sister-in-law has fibromyalgia and rheumatoid arthritis. Those symptoms are very similar to Lyme symptoms. Why don't I go there and find out and at least rule out that this is not an autoimmune situation? Um, And when I went to the rheumatologist who was lovely and, um, and my fingers were swelling up, by the way, I didn't mention that like the joint symptoms that I was feeling was, you know, I felt like I was a hundred years old, like all my bones were hurting. I could barely open the fridge um, at one point. Um, my, my I, I was showing my husband, I'm like, look, I'm not making it up. My finger is ginormous. Look at this, this is, this is not right. Something's going on, you know? So I'd have these migratory joint pains, right? Such a classic Lyme symptom. And every doctor I'd go to, I'd be like, are you sure it's not Lyme because I'm in a forest? No, no, no. So again, the rheumatologist, checked me for Lyme and oh, so I came negative again. And I said, isn't there another test? Can't you do like the next level? Like I didn't know what it was called, right? The Western blot. So I, and they said, no, you don't need that. But we did all these rheumatoid arthritis tests. Then he was convinced, first he was convinced I had fibromyalgia and because of the joint pain. So he put me on this nerve pain medication which literally made me suicidal within five days, right? I. I have a history of depression and anxiety, and I should have never been put on that medication. I became so unbearable. My husband was like, what is going on? Like, who are you? Like, you're, you know, and I I was severely depressed within five days. It was like, and I looked at that medication. I read the side effect and I'm like, hold on a second. I shouldn't even be taking this. Like, not only is the pain not getting better, I am I'm like, I'm crying all day long. Like this can't be right. Something is wrong. So I, I went off it and I told him, I'm like, I don't think I have fibromyalgia. I really think I have Lyme disease. And he's like, well, why don't you come in again? And we're going to do another round of testing. So then he says, okay, I think you have zero negative rheumatoid arthritis, right? Which is like you test negative. So, um, and just based on my clinical, uh, you know, symptoms, um, and, the whole time i had this gut feeling that it was lyme but i just couldn't so then i realized okay he wanted to put me on this biologic um drug which is like a low level chemotherapy basically for rheumatoid arthritis symptoms and i'm like you know nobody in my family has autoimmune issues are you really sure this is that i mean i was happy i wanted a diagnosis so badly that i was like I almost embraced it. I was like, yes, well, I have rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, early onset old lady disease, great. Like that's it, you know, now I know what I have and now I can treat it and yay, whatever. Just like not that not knowing, I think it's the most torturous part of it, that knowing that something is wrong, but also I look healthy, right? I um, do not look sick, right? So when you tell doctors you're, you're not feeling well and you look well, and you're functioning, high functioning, right? It's really, um, it's, it's so frustrating. Um, yeah, so I never took that biologic drug. I decided, I'm like, this is not, this is not it. You know, I just listened to my gut and I found a Lyme literate uh, physician because I said, how can this be that in Connecticut, like all these do- doctors don't know about Lyme? This is so bizarre. Um, and I ended up going with a naturopathic doctor we didn't take insurance, of course, right? Everything out of pocket. And I finally just bit the bullet because I was like, I, I need to know what's happening. And so I started seeing her. Um, Masha,
1: before we, before we go to that, down that road, let's talk about the medication you got for the fibromyalgia. What was that nerve medication that made you suicidal and didn't help you at all?
2: You know, I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah, I don't know what it was. I'd have to look it up.
1: And again, you're living in Connecticut where the Lyme Lyme was discovered. You keep saying, I think I have Lyme disease. You're exhibiting all of the classic symptoms of Lyme. They won't give you anything beyond the screening for Lyme disease, which we know is horribly inaccurate. Nobody would run a Western blot from your general, your general doctor all the way through to your rheumatologist, correct?
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: And then they wanted to put you on a low level of chemo to treat rheumatoid arthritis rather than exploring Lyme disease.
2: Yeah, I mean, he just, you know, because he just wasn't trained in it. So he was trained in rheumatology and all of those illnesses. And and that's the missing link. I realized that, you know, um, there's something missing. Like the doctors are just not learning about this in medical school. They're not being trained for it. And certainly the GPs are dismissing it altogether, right? or at least the GPs that I ended up seeing because, you know, they checked my thyroid level. It's something to do with my thyroid. When I was still nursing, forget it. When I was still nursing, you know, it was like, Oh, well, you're, you're, of course you're nursing a baby. You know, you're, you have little children, they're keeping you up at night. So of course you don't feel well, that's normal, right? That's, that's normal. But then when I stopped nursing and I'm like, my kids are sleeping through the night now, now what's the excuse? Like, now what's the reason? Like, why are, why is my Achilles heel killing me? It, like when I shuffle out of bed in the morning, that doesn't make sense.
1: So much. Well, there other symptoms. So obviously you were having trouble even getting out of bed and walking, but beyond the, the arthritis and beyond the fatigue and beyond the brain fog, were there any other symptoms that popped up when you had this crash after you stopped nursing?
2: No. Uh, So those were the main symptoms, brain fog, uh, fatigue, and migratory joint pain.
1: So you now pivot over to this Lyme specialist who's a naturopath in Connecticut. So walk us through what that was like finally after seeing your primary care doctor and your rheumatologist who totally dismissed the idea of Lyme disease.
2: Yeah. So that was you know, it was money well spent, I would say, because, uh, you know, I I had, I pushed it off, I procrastinated on seeing her for over a year, because I just didn't want to spend the money, like the first initial assessment was, you know, I don't know, a lot. And I just thought, you know, I can, I can spend this on other things for the kids that we don't, I don't need to do this. Then I finally got to the point where, okay, I need help. And I'm not getting answers anywhere else that insurance does cover, so I'm gonna go with it. And she did like a full blood analysis. And I remember my husband was with me when she when we had the telehealth um, visit and she said, okay, you have an active Lyme infection, like right now, you have walking pneumonia. <laughs> um and there was like a host of other issues and I was like what she's like I don't even know how you're functioning I'm like I don't know coffee (laughs) like willpower um you know just mom guilt I it was crazy it was such a relief to see you know the actual results were in my blood all along I mean I don't know how I got the pneumonia to be honest that was a whole other thing um but um yeah, the fact that I had an active, and she said, and you have chronic Lyme, you know, you have had Lyme in the past, no surprise, right? Um, So she's like, okay, well, the first thing we need to do is treat your active infection. So she can prescribe antibiotics because she's an ND. So I was like, okay, well, at least I know what I have. So now I'm going to go to my GP and get the antibiotics. So I went on two months of antibiotics, and, um, and it was like, it was a complete game changer. It was like within a few days, within four days, I started feeling better.
1: So Masha, before, before we go into more detail about the antibiotics, I do wanna back up and ask you a question about your naturopath. So you mentioned you did a telehealth. So did you do lab work in advance and then go over the results with the, with the naturopath? Or is this a clinical diagnosis made over the phone based on your symptoms?
2: No. So I saw her in person and it was just the telehealth visit was to review the results of the tests. So I had, um, you know, a physical exam and blood draw and everything.
1: And with that blood work, did it come, did she do the Western blot in addition to the Elisa as well?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: And I'm curious, did she test for any co-infections like any other tick-borne disease panels?
2: She did. She, she's a Lyme, uh, specialist uh, Lyme and autoimmune disease specialist, which is why I went to her and she focuses on women and Lyme. Um, so yes, she tested for all the co-infections, etc., And the, you know, the, you know, just came up for Lyme basically.
1: So if people are listening and they want to learn more, possibly see your doctor, can, are you comfortable sharing her name or can they DM you if they're interested in, in trying to find a doctor who specializes in Lyme and autoimmune because they go, they go together hand in hand so often, and people struggle to find a, a competent doctor to help treat them.
2: Yes, so I would say I would say DM me, um, because there's there's kind of more to the story. Like I'm not seeing her now for for a reason, so I don't want to say her name. Um, but um, she, she definitely was an important part of my journey, and she helped me get a diagnosis. Um, and yeah, you can just DM me at Masha Goins. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that, you know, having that clarity, it was just a shock kind of to me. I'm like, this was in my blood all the time. And I actually had an active infection. Of course, I don't remember. I, I didn't see a tick on me. I mean, I have, since we've moved here, I have found ticks on me. I have found numerous ticks on my children, on their head, in their ears and on their belly. I mean, that is, The most upsetting thing when you have you know when you find a tick on your little girl and i i mean i've got like the special tweezers i have the little things i take them right to the lab town hall here submits them for testing i'm on that but it's so upsetting especially when you don't find it right away when it's like when it's been on them for a day that's the worst part of it um but anyway i digress
1: so, Masha, we're going to put your contact info in the show notes of this podcast episode. And are you comfortable sharing with us? You mentioned that you no longer see this doctor for some some reasons. Is that something that you don't want? You're not comfortable sharing? Or can you share with the audience what that reason is?
2: Yeah, no, I'm happy to share that. I mean, I I I feel like what helped me um, with uh, was the clarity of my diagnosis and knowing what I needed to do, and then going on two months of antibiotics was a complete game changer. It 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 helped me a lot. So all of the joint migratory joint pains, all of that went away. Um, My fatigue and brain fog improved, but did not go away. Um, But the joint pain was was a huge part of it, right? And that really did go away. Um, And then um, she um, put me on this herbal protocol. I think it's called Cowden Protocol for months, right? And I, I mean, that thing is like, Like if you're a busy parent and you have to do like 15 drops of this and this, and like two, two, three times a day. I mean, my head was like exploding from trying to keep up with what I needed to do at what time, and then take like a 5,000 different supplements, which are all, you know, really expensive as well. So I said, that's okay. I'm going to do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to do exactly what she says. I'm going to do exactly what she says. She said, go on an alkaline diet. Okay. Now, I was already eating super healthy. I'm a pescatarian. I haven't had a sip of alcohol since 2005. I am, you know, like my biggest vice is having my oat milk latte in the morning. Like I have one shot of coffee in the morning. That is like as bad as it gets these days. Um, And so going alkaline was an extreme version of what I was already doing. But it made, it meant that like my eating was really, constricted, you know, really reduced. And it made it very complicated because I had to prepare dinner for my husband, one thing, right, Six six, like he can't just eat kale, like he cannot, like he needs more, um, you know, and then my kids, right, they're not gonna eat all the, like the leafy green vegetables, they, they eat pretty healthy, but um, so it was, it just complicated my life a lot. But I was determined, I'm like, I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna do this, but it was not sustainable right? Like that restrictive diet is not sustainable. Um, And the other thing is the the supplements um, were not sustainable as well. So I didn't feel like I got any better after like that initial antibiotics helped me get better. The other stuff, I don't feel that it helped me get better. It just really complicated my
1: life. So Just to be clear, Masha, the alkaline diet and the Cowden Herbal Protocol did not help me feel better. But earlier on, when you first started the antibiotics for, for two months, within the first few weeks, you felt much better, specifically in the area of your arthritis, but not your brain fog or your um, fatigue. Correct?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So when when you mentioned that the treatment was when you mentioned that the treatment was the antibiotics and the Cowden protocol, was this a treatment protocol recommended by your? by your naturopath and you had to use your primary care doctor for the antibiotics because you needed a prescription or were you now treating primarily with your primary care physician for the antibiotics and the herbs?
2: Yeah. So I was primarily treating with a naturopathic doctor and she had a, uh, a friend who was an MD who would prescribe antibiotics. Um, so that's how it happened. Um, and, um, you know, I, had follow up consultations, etc, and I just after a few months, I just realized that that was as good as it gets with that relationship, like there was no other um, treatment it was just um every visit that I then had subsequently was you know, let me add another supplement, okay, let me add another supplement and I was just getting tired of having to you know purchase and consume so many different supplements that I felt like you know, I mean, I've always been a fan of supplements, but I just felt like they weren't moving the needle and, um, and the Cowden protocol, you know, I did that for months. And um, so, yeah, so I finally got to a point where I'm like, I don't think I need to continue seeing her because it's not, it's not helping me. And, but but the, before I get to that point, I have to tell you that last winter, I started feeling worse again. So even though I was on the Cowden protocol, I was doing all of this healthy eating supplements up the wazoo. And I started getting all of the lime, the joint pain again. And I I told her, I said, you know, I feel like I I've been, I've been bitten again. I know like, this sounds crazy. You're going to think I'm nuts, but like, I literally, and it it was the winter time, but we were hiking, we were hiking. It was like pandemic winter, right? Like family activity. We're like, There's nothing we can do. Let's go hiking together. Um, And I did not strip off all my clothes after hiking or run and take a shower, right? Like I'm running after the kids and something else happens. You forget about it. I always do the tick checks for them, but I wasn't being that fastidious for myself. So I said, I want to get tested again. Let's just, let me get tested again. And lo and behold, I got tested again. And she was like, you're right. You have been reinfected you have another active infection I was like wow great I can just literally step outside and a tick is gonna like drop on my head I don't understand how is this happening like even in the winter time Um, you know but the so but the thing is that I felt it I knew that something was going on and uh, again she said okay well and I said look supposedly I'm on this Cowden protocol, which is supposed to be like these herbs are more powerful than antibiotics. And yet I'm not feeling that, right? I'm not, they're not helping me. Like I got the active infection and they're not helping me. So, and she's like, yeah, I think you need to go on antibiotics again. I'm like, okay. So now at this point I said, okay, I'm not gonna go with antibiotics with your friend. I'm just gonna talk to my GP. And my GP put me on antibiotics. And again, I felt better after the antibiotics.
1: Was was this another two-month window of antibiotics?
2: No, this was just four weeks.
1: Four weeks. Okay. So I do want to go back to the Cowden Protocol because we've had people that have talked to us about the Cowden Protocol on this podcast, and all of them have said the same thing, pretty much exactly what you're saying, that it is extremely overwhelming because it becomes a full-time job just to take your medicine pretty much all day long You know, at random points throughout the day, and it was very stressful and they didn't feel much better. So I wonder if if the stress and anxiety that comes along with it is that do you think suppressing your immune system because you're anxious, you're stressed and now it's actually making you feel worse because there's so much involved in this protocol.
2: I mean, I don't think so because I was very positive about it initially. I was like, yeah, these dr- you know, these herbs from the rainforest, they're going to be great and this is going to like kill all the little spirally bacteria in my blood. Fantastic. Like, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, I had my sheet printed out in the kitchen, like I knew exactly I was on it. Um, and, but I just wasn't seeing the results with it, you know? So that I think is when you get the frustration that, okay, I'm taking this, but really the one thing that moved the needle for me, and I know that this is not the case for everyone with Lyme. Some people take the antibiotics and they don't feel better at all. Um, but in my case, that was the needle mover.
1: So you really went into this with uh, game on. This is going to work. These herbs are going to kill the bacteria. And it still didn't work. So it wasn't even a mindset piece or a stress piece. This was really just, they didn't work for you.
2: Right. And the interesting thing is like, if, you know, I during my treatment was uh, bitten, right? So while I was on the Cowden protocol, I actually was bitten by a tick and had a new active infection. And um, I actually, it did not seem to be working so there's some kind of disconnect i don't know where the disconnect is but whether it's just me but it did not um do anything and then and and so that was like frustrating to me because i invested a lot of time money and um you know it's i think it's the mental load of it that is so frustrating you know because especially when you're a busy parent um you know you have the emotional mental load there's like a million things you have to keep track of and so doing something that doesn't seem to be helping is not really, um, you know, it's frustrating.
1: It's definitely not just you. We've been told by a lot of other people that the count protocol hasn't been for them either, but I'm curious. So today, how are you feeling? So for example, you mentioned your brain fog and your fatigue Help was improved a little bit, but not so much. Are you still, are you still experiencing brain fog and fatigue today? Or has that gotten better as well?
2: So I have had improvements in fatigue and brain fog, but I still have them. Um, and certain times of the month, I'll feel worse. Like the week before my period is due, I tend to feel worse. And I know that there's a Lyme and ho- hormone connection um, that, you know, I don't know what the connection is, but it has something to do with estrogen and um. And I think that that's why you get these like flare-ups of symptoms during those times. And the other thing I didn't mention is that three years ago, when I started, like my body was crashing after I stopped nursing, um, I started getting sinus infections or what I thought were sinus infections. And this is how, this was like the missing piece. Speaking of rain fog, I forgot to tell you how I even found out about Lyme was because I was getting what I thought were sinus infections. And I went to the ENT, you yeah, know, I went to the GP and the GP prescribed antibiotics and it wasn't helping. So then I went to the ENT and they did like that sinus, you know, they put the probe up into your brain or whatever, very pleasant experience. Um, and, and the, the guy's like, you don't have a sinus infection. You, you have severe inflammation. And I'm like, well, when he's like, I think you, you must have severe environmental allergies. I'm like, oh no, no, I don't have allergies. Like I'm not an allergy person, like that's not me. Um, and he's like, no, you need to see an allergist. So then I went to an allergist and I did all the you know, tests and it turns out I was severely allergic to all sorts of things suddenly, right? This I wasn't before, um, all the pollen, like all the trees, uh, and again, we live like surrounded by trees, all the grasses, um, dust, of course, um, you know, cats. I've always known that I was allergic to cats. That's like the one thing that I've known throughout my life, dust and cats. I'm a little allergic to, right? But it wasn't until recently that I became severely allergic to everything. And there's a huge connection between the um, the auto, the, the basically autoimmune inflammatory autoimmune response that allergies create in your body and the line. So I started treating the allergies with, um, I'm seeing uh, an amazing doctor, allergist, Dr. Lewin, who I highly recommend. He's in Norwalk, Connecticut, as well as New York City. And he prescribes sublingual drops like autoimmune therapy. So instead of, I know some people get these allergy shots, but they don't really work. These autoimmune drops, they you know, give you a little bit of what you're allergic to and they build up your immune system over time. So I have been tackling that in the last three years and I'm on gear three of like a five-year plan basically. Um, but I think that there has been so much like connection between my allergies and the Lyme symptoms.
1: Now, is that called antigen therapy that you're getting under your tongue?
2: It's called, um, it's called immunotherapy,
1: immunotherapy. So so as you pointed out, I think this is very common for people that when they like I, I had allergies my whole life as well and they were minor. But then when I got sick with Lyme disease, my allergies were off the charts and so much more severe. I think because you're suffering from an autoimmune inflammation from your allergies. Then you're suffering from inflammation due to the Lyme bacteria itself. And together your your allergy symptoms get even worse and your body becomes more inflamed. So I'm curious, Masha, you said you've been on this now for a little bit of time. Have you found now that you've been able to treat Lyme twice as antibiotics and you're also working on your allergies with these, with these drops under your tongue, are your allergies getting better?
2: Yes, they're definitely getting better. I don't get like any sinus infections or anything like that anymore. Um, and I'm still, you know, taking allergy medication every day. Um, But I think that, you know, whenever like now in the fall, there's like the ragweed season. I had no idea that that was even a thing, you know, like I was living in New York city, like what is ragweed? I don't even know, but apparently it's everywhere, you know, it's all over our property. I'm like allergic to everything. Um, So yeah, I think that treating my allergy is going to be the, the, the missing link to finally getting rid of the rest of the Lyme symptoms. Um, because of that um, connected, you know, autoimmune response.
1: So really it was two different sources contributing to your inflammation, which is making it unbearable. And you're now able to address both, which is allowing your body to sort of take a breath and feel better, I think is what you're saying.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: So talk to us about things that you've learned throughout your journey. So just things that you've intuitively been able to identify. You, you mentioned that you're just a really clean eater, that you exercise when you can and you do things like that, but have there been any food triggers for you that have made your Lyme symptoms worse or given you a Lyme flare?
2: Um, So yes, actually, when I was seeing that rheumatologist initially um, when, you know, he thought it was fibromyalgia and then he said it was rheumatoid arthritis. And he mentioned, he's like, well, some of my patients, um, you know, get relief by going on a gluten-free diet. Like he said, that as an aside, you know, not like I recommend you go on one, but some of them do it on their own. And I had been gluten-free-ish for se- like a, several years before that for health, you know, just for healthy eating reasons, um, ever since that naturopath had said, oh, you're mildly allergic to wheat or whatever. So I said, okay, uh, you know what? I'm just going to go gluten-free 100% because I was not, I was like half uh, assessing it, Right. I was like, you know, like a really good looking cookie came my way. And then I was not gluten-free, but then the rest of the week had be gluten-free, right? But then I was like, okay, I'm going to do 100% gluten-free. There's like a meal, everything is gluten-free now. This should not be difficult, right? Um, And so, yeah, I've been gluten-free and I have recently been uh, almost completely dairy-free. And um, I think that has helped a lot as well.
1: So before I hand you back over to Rich Masha, is there anything that you've learned throughout your journey that you want to share with our audience, whether it's a tip or a trick or an observation or something that you've had to stumble upon that you wish you knew earlier on in your journey?
2: Yes. The number one thing is to realize that you know your body better than anybody else. And only you know how you feel inside your body. And you have to be your number one advocate. If you just passively give up Your power to a physician and accept their misdiagnosis etc you can be completely stuck like you have to be the detective and you have to treat it like the most important job in the world because you're not going to get better and you're going to get stuck in a misdiagnosis or you know I I tell people like a a lot of people come to me on social media actually they find me and they're like wow I'm having some of these symptoms and I'm like get tested but don't just do that screening test because you are probably going to come up negative and then the whole you know that's how it all starts for a lot of people um so yeah so really being that detective for yourself and trusting your intuition um and um uh and and continuing to and not getting comfortable like even i found a naturopathic doctor she helped me but now She's not helping me anymore. Like now I need the next thing, you know? So it's, it's taking that power to yourself and taking it back for yourself, for your own healing.
0: Marcia, I have a question before I talk to you about your transformation, about you being uh, a tick magnet. Uh, I've actually been accused of being a tick magnet, even by some of the folks on our social media. And my argument in response to that is that I'm not a tick magnet, I'm a tick checker. I do often find ticks on me, but I grew up in a tick endemic community. I've always checked for ticks since my childhood. And because of that, I find ticks on me. So do you think that there's something unique about you that's attracting you to ticks? Or are you just somebody who is aware because this has been a part of your life since your childhood and because of that awareness and because you're checking, you're just finding them?
2: I, I suspect that there is something uh, that makes me, whether it's my scent or my blood that makes me attractive to ticks, 100%. I'm the person who, if nobody else is getting a mosquito bite, is gonna be riddled with mosquito bites. Like the mos- They're gonna hone in on me like you know heat seeking missiles. So there's definitely something there. I don't know what it is. I'm not a scientist, but if I was one, I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna study this because it, it obviously has, you know, it just can't be, like it can't be that you, otherwise it doesn't make rational
0: sense. So perhaps perhaps like you, I am really a tick magnet and it's not just my tick checking skills that's causing me to find them, but I am in fact, uh, you know, having both mosquitoes, which often bite me as well, and uh, and and ticks uh, finding me. So we're gonna have to spend more time thinking about that and exploring that in the future. But I, I do wanna now talk to you about the beauty of this journey, and how this, uh, how this journey with Lyme disease has been transformational in your life and allowed you to learn about yourself, learn things about yourself that you would not have learned had you not um, gone through the suffering that Lyme disease has caused you.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, what it's helped me learn is that, um, you know, understanding like you, your most important relationship is with yourself. You know, and that journey, it's been a journey of radical self-love, to be honest, because instead of just seeing your body as like something that gets you through the day, it's um, really honoring your body and seeing, you know, how how you can help it heal holistically. Um, and so that's that's been a big part of it. And, um, you know, I know that when I went through this whole childbirthing and nursing and all of that, that was a huge... Um, huge stress on my body like I gave everything you know like to my little ones and um and I don't regret doing that but as a result I was very depleted so I don't think there's that connection you know we don't really understand like how can maybe mothers who are going into that like how can they be supported because I know that for a lot of women who are going that that's when a lot of other things fall apart as well but then it's like oh well you know that's just part of it you
0: know so we're going to pull these two things together because at the end of Matt's portion of his conversation with you, you talked about listening to your body and the signals that your body's giving you and how you have to honor that primarily if you're going to be successful in your journey. But now you're also talking about this radical self-love and the importance of taking care of a body that is a powerful tool. So can you bring those two together for us and talk to us about how you connected the lessons and the signals that your body was giving to you and how that helped you to heal your body.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, we are so used to after years of numbing the things that you feel in your mind, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, sadness, um, or self doubt or anything like that, instead of you know, numbing instead of like, I'm feeling like this. So I'm going to reach for, you know, the chocolate bar or I'm going to have a drink or I'm going to do whatever is going to help me feel better. It's really like being in that moment and trying to, um, actually become aware of what you're feeling, because there's this big rush, like our whole society is all about, you know, numbing ourselves, whether it's, you know, so whether it's consumption as well, right, there are other forms of addiction and consumption and online shopping, and, you know, filling up our houses with all this CRAP that we don't need, right. So it's about kind of going more inwards and realizing, like, what do you actually need, right, you need this thing that you're this house that you're in, you need it to work. Like that is the number one thing. Everything else is like secondary because nothing else works if it doesn't.
0: And to make that house that you're in work, you have to listen to that house, right? And that's the sort of the the, the parallels that you are you were developing. So let's talk about your professional transformation, because as you've been on this Lyme disease journey, you've also gone through a professional transformation where you found a different home professionally as well. And I want to explore the entrepreneurial spirit that you now have and how you believe that your Lyme journey has helped you to get to the place where you need it to be, where you can serve as an entrepreneur rather than initially as a not-for-profit employee?
2: Yeah, I think that for me, it was all about being true to myself and finding my purpose in life, you know, and uh, that is um, all about coming home in another way, right? So that's where I am now. And I'm, I'm, you know, finding my purpose. It's like, I know that I'm doing the thing that I should be doing. And it's an, it's an exciting um, journey. Um, And um, so it's again, as an entrepreneur, there, you have to create that, boundaries, though, because it's not like you just clock in, you clock out, right? It could, it can be all-consuming. If you have workaholic tendencies, um, you can be all-consuming. But I I set very clear boundaries for myself um, so that I can be that mom um, when my kids come off the bus, that I can bake cookies with them, that we can do stuff, that I'm present with them, that I'm not glued to my phone. And the fact is that the more successful I am on social media, the less time I spend on social media because it is, it is an addiction, right? So, um, so yeah, so I I think that, you know, the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey is not easy, but it, for me, it's the, is the way to go.
0: So now talk about the entrepreneurial business that you've developed, right? You are now um, a mom-to-mom trainer, where you're training people to use, uh, to develop their businesses on, um, on Instagram. So talk about how Lyme disease, which ultimately caused you to come home, be at peace with who you are, listen to your body, listen to these signals, which then took you from working at a large place like Amazon to a, uh, to a uh, small business that you started your, yourself, which required you to not only place limits on yourself physically and emotionally, but also now place limits on yourself Professionally, which has now caused me to have even greater results than you had before. So, talk about how that journey developed for you.
2: Yeah. And I think that the pandemic actually had a big part in it because, um, you know, when everything kind of came to a head and it was all so crazy and like the kids were home and suddenly my husband and I were both working full time and having to homeschool. And it was just uh, absolutely stressful and insane. And um, at that time, I was working in marketing and communications um, uh, for a uh, for a church for a nonprofit, and it was a very to- it became a very toxic work environment. And I realized, like the- what the pandemic showed us is like what really matters. What do you want to do with your life, right? When it all boils down to it. And I'm like, you know what? I that's not what I want to do. Like what, what I want to do is not be in a toxic work environment. I want to be in a healthy work environment. I want to um, follow my passions. I don't want to put up with things that I don't think are correct, or I don't want to, you know, do something that I don't believe in. Um, And so it all kind of came together, I think, honoring my body and honoring sort of my mind and my soul.
0: So Let's talk about the skills that you had developed before you became a mom and you met your husband and you were working in the not-for-profit world. You were, you were actually working in war-torn societies and you were helping women in war-torn societies. Um, and then you, you are now working with women who need to find balance and can make that work-life balance. And you're actually training them how to use Instagram in a way that will be beneficial to them without having to post too often. So give us that Show us how that, that, that arc has come together for you and how going on this Lyme disease journey helped you to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I was always about, like what drove me was always to um, serve others and to help others and to connect with them and inspire them. And now through Instagram, I found a way of um, actually practically helping um, you know, female entrepreneurs uh, build their businesses in a way that is sustainable and in a way that doesn't require you being on social media all the time because there is such a dark side to that, right? There's a really a big dark side to um, Instagram um, as we know and to Facebook, et cetera. And so how can you make it work for your brand without being glued to your phone, right? How can you actually build a successful business with a small audience, right? These are things that seem really impossible to do and really complicated. And I have like, I, ha- I know I have a method to do them. So I am like on a mission to help others do that because it's, it's, it's a game changer um, once you do.
0: So now I want to ask you the final question. We ask everyone on the tick Boot Camp, and uh, because you have two daughters, I'm going to ask you about both of them. Let's say, God forbid, the two of your daughters are playing outside. Well, you were kind enough to take time out to share your journey with our listeners. And they came into your room after you finished the podcast and you conducted the tick check that you always take, you always do. And you found ticks on your children. What would you do with the ticks and your children to make sure your children wouldn't suffer from chronic Lyme disease?
2: Okay, so what I do is because sadly this happens um, and actually we started spraying our yard this year so it's been happening less often um, but we weren't spraying our yard. I was like against spraying the yard, you know, I don't know, um, what, what, like that must've been the brain fog. What was I thinking? I should have sprayed the yard from the very beginning. Um, but uh, so they, what I do is I have uh, little vials, our town hall Actually, health department um, gives these little tick kits, right? They come little vials. So I'm like a little scientist. I have these special tweezers to pull them out. I put them in the vials as much as I want to like, you know, crush them and torture them in horrible ways. I don't do that. I just put them in the vials. I seal the vials. I bring them to town hall. They submit them to the Connecticut, whatever research center where they test them. I give them all the information and then I find out like which ticks are positive for what. Um, and then I monitor my kids for symptoms. I look for the rash, I look for fevers, I look for any joint you know, achiness. And most recently I have been giving my daughters uh, like a 24 hour antibiotic dose. I'm just requesting it from the doctor. They're not even, they're like, no, no, no symptoms. They're fine. And I'm like, okay, I just wanna put her on 24 hours of antibiotics. Like it's not gonna harm her but it could help like if anything was transmitted because the problem is that the scientists at the lab, when I talk to them, they're like, oh yeah, they can start transmitting within 15 minutes of being attached to you, okay? The doctors are like, it's gotta be at least 24 hours, right? There's a big difference like between those two, like so which, I don't know that they know exactly when it happens, right? It's something between the two, but the fact is if it's been on you for several hours, you know, who knows, right? Um, so knock on wood, so far, my girls have been good, but I'm on it like a hawk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Masha Goins. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Masha Goins, please visit our Instagram page at Masha Goins. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or on Instagram or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.